0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B Y T E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Beijing, hi. You're on the Seneca podcast. How are you? <laughs> I'm Anthony Tao, the managing editor of SubChina, sitting in for Kaiser for a live taping of the Seneca podcast. We are in Beijing, where Seneca began many moons ago. Uh, You guys look like a happy, optimistic bunch. Uh, I myself am not. I believe that human beings are in for a very rough future everywhere, but it is always good to be in Beijing. It's good to be home. The Seneca podcast is a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. Subchina is the best way to stay on top of the latest news from China in just a few minutes a day. It is a feast fit for a kaiser of political, business and cultural news about fit, a nation fit, 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 that is reshaping the a world. Kaiser? A feast <laughs> fit for a kaiser. <laughs> okay.
1: Sorry, That's where new. Where did
0: that come from? <laughs> it's Kaiser's line about it being a feast of. Poli- I get it. Okay, okay. Um, we well, are here at the Bookworm Literary Festival, a two and a half week festival extravaganza celebration, really of uh, literature and ideas and expression uh, and art and music and all that. It is coming to an end. Uh, Sadly, this is the last weekend, though I'm sure Peter Goff, who is the owner and all of his hardworking, amazing staff, will be happy to soon get their lives back. Um, Peter, Peter, thank you so much. Thank you, Peter, indeed. Um, Although, you're not done yet. You have to deal with us for this evening. And who is us uh, back in the co-host chair with me is David Moser, who is no stranger around these parts. David, it is great to see you again. Great to see you again, too. We saw each other yesterday, didn't we? That's true. Yeah. <laughs> we, did, we did a taping uh, on your home campus at Beta. Uh, but in the immortal words of Wiz Khalifa, it's been a long day without you, my friend. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Our guest, back in the 90s, was in a very famous TV show. In fact, four times. He is the only non-Chinese person to appear four times on the CCTV Spring Festival Gala. Um, No big deal. It's only watched by a billion people every year. He is China's most beloved Canadian, or... (laughs) (laughs) Whoa. Or I should say, uh, he is a Canadian and still probably beloved in China... (laughs) He is now combining Chinese comedy with Western stand up in an hour long show. Maybe we'll get to talk about that in a little bit. Um, and he is the Zhu Shuye, uh, the forefather of Chinese speaking foreigners everywhere. Beasle. <laughs> Someone who set the bar impossibly high, if I might say. It is the man, the myth, the big mountain. Mark Roswell. <laughs> <laughs> Great to be back here at the Bookworm and on, on Seneca
1: again. This is my second time on Seneca, and I think I'm setting the record for the only guest to have been on the Seneca podcast twice, never hosted by Jeremy or Kaiser. <laughs> Some kind of a weird vibe going you there. Think
0: you think you're missing out?
1: They assign that to
2: us.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They ass- yeah. Um, we are here to talk about language specifically Chinese, uh, that devilishly hard language family spoken by about 14 to 16% of the world's population. Uh, most of those people are Chinese, uh, which, of course, um, <laughs> the same can't be said of Spanish or English, for instance, uh, the second and third most spoken languages in the world. Uh, those are languages that have spread far beyond the borders of their origin. Along with Mark, we'll, um, we'll explore this and many other issues and probably range a bit farther from the homestead and into the territory of culture and identity and language as a tool for assimilation, perhaps, or eradication. Um, So let's start this discussion here, actually. Um, Frankie Huang, who is a a sub-China contributor, a brilliant writer, uh, recently wrote a piece for us called The Actual Worth of Chinese Language Proficiency, in which he argues that we tend to overrate the importance of Chinese proficiency for job acquisition and career advancement in this country, and um, for, for foreigners, of course. And she argues that there are sunk costs to learning Chinese. So the language is especially hard, um, as uh, incredibly hard as anyone who's tried to learn probably knows. And you have to put in somewhere around a bajillion hours just at the onset to be competent. And then, and then because you've put in so much time just to be able to order off a menu, there's a sunk cost fallacy that kicks in because uh, you think, oh, I've already come this far, I might as well strive for mastery. But, but the trap is, no matter how much time you put in, you never really get to attain that, that level of, uh, of mastery, of, at least you know, compared to, for instance, a native Chinese speaker um, who gets her education abroad and comes home, uh, you know, high the, the sea turtles. Um, and if, if you're relying on language to save you, it won't. Because you're competing against these people, that's on one hand. And then on the other hand, you're competing against foreigners who instead of putting a billion hours into language, they've used that time to develop real skills. Um, what do you guys think? Uh,
1: that was an interesting article, but I think the main uh, commentary about the article was the idea, and this is not a new idea, because when I was in university in the 80s, we, everyone was saying, you know, Chinese is a great skill to have, but you have to have Chinese and something else. I think what's changed now from the '80s, and uh, a lot of the commentary on Twitter sort of reflected this too, is that it's kind of required. It's not a it's not a unique skill anymore, for, even for foreigners. Uh, it's kind of required. I, I I kind of you know I think sometimes I I overuse this analogy, but I kind of flip it around the other way. I mean, if you went to America and your only skill was that you spoke English, you'd probably have a bit of trouble too. You've got to speak English and have some other skill, right? I think for me. I'm in kind of a strange situation because I, I'm I'm kind of a weird career that's hard to define. Like Dashan is famous. What is he famous for? He he speaks Chinese. <laughs> uh, like what does he do? Well, he speaks Chinese. <laughs> you know, because a lot of what I do or what I'm famous for, of course, the comedic skits and everything, is very hard to measure. So even now, 30 years later, I'll, I'll do a performance. And, uh, you know, I had one that sort of spread around the Internet uh, this, last, uh, this last Chinese New Year. And a lot of the commentary is still focused on language. Wow, his Chinese is really good. So because comedy is something that's really hard to measure, right? He's famous for doing comedy. No, he's famous because he speaks Chinese goodly. <laughs> um so I don't know. I mean, there's, this is a huge issue and there's a lot to unpack in there. But I I, I do think that I think uh, and I don't think that's a new thing. I think you have to. Chinese is an important skill. It's, you know, it's again, to use this American analogy, if you didn't speak English, you can still get by in America. You can you can live, you can work, you can have a career and everything. But it makes everything much more difficult. Right. So speaking English is an important skill, just as in China, speaking Chinese is an important skill.
0: I just want to say really quick. um, the, uh, the skit that you're talking about, the stand-up, was the one that you did in Toronto, right? The yeah. Beijingers can't speak Cantonese. And Including was... me, because I'm a Beijinger. <laughs> <laughs> you try to speak Cantonese, and people can tell right away, oh, you're oh. a Beijinger. Yeah,
1: yeah. I speak, Be- I speak Cantonese like a Beijinger. <laughs> so that uh, that I, I had a lot of fun with that one. That uh, actually, uh, it's um, interesting, too, because it's sort of... The commentary, half has been, oh, this isn't really xiangsheng, it's stand up. And then the other half is saying, oh, this isn't really stand up, that's xiangsheng. So I seem to have sort of found a middle ground in between it. But I, I consider it a xiangsheng because the, the central part of that skit actually was not original composition. You know, not stand up, it's very important that you're, you're writing your own material. Xiangsheng, you're allowed to steal other people's material. And, and, uh, uh, and, you know, about a third of that was something that I actually had picked up from my, from my mentor, Jiang Kun. But I think it was... Uh, uh, I'm kind of proud of it that way in that it's it's sort of straddles stand-up and Xiangzheng, and it's neither and both, which oh, is yeah, what okay. I was trying for. Before
0: we stray too far into that... By the way, everyone should go check out that uh, stand-up. Um, it's on his YouTube channel, and it's really excellent. If you
1: just search for Beijingers can't speak Cantonese, that's, it comes up. <laughs> uh, David, you want to weigh
2: in? Uh, you know, I used to say that uh, to people who would ask me this question because it, it, came up, it came up in my life because I was in the middle of the 90s. I'd been... Sp- 1990s, not 1890s. And I'd been uh, learning Chinese for almost more than 10 years. And I was thinking, why am I not making more money? I mean, surely the ability to speak Chinese must make money. But I, but I finally came to the painful conclusion that because uh, I saw the people around me, the people who were making the big bucks were the CEOs and people who didn't even care. They were only here two or three years and they were going away with millions and they never even bothered to learn Chinese. But it was obvious that the, the people around me who were having interesting experiences. Or life-changing experiences or experiences that would lead to a book or, you know, just an amazing realization or going back to to teaching or being in academia. Those were the ones who were speaking Chinese and that's something that they parlayed into a a career. What's interesting about Mark is that he came, he started, he went on TV, you know, for two at this moment is 1988, I think, wasn't it, Mark? The first one, yeah. Yeah, that was a time when very, very few foreigners spoke Chinese, especially not blonde Blue eyed ones. Um, So Mark kind of actually was stumbled into one of those interesting experiences that I was talking about just by virtue of speaking Chinese. Uh, So he's actually not a counterexample. Mark also. Uh, you know, I suppose now you're making the big bucks, right? But back then you were just getting 300 kwiah for per, well, per performance. But you you were able to have that experience because you had gone to the t- trouble of learning enough Chinese to go on national
1: TV. Well, but on the financial point, I was at that point I was on a I was on a scholarship that I remember was 183 renminbi per month, and I still saved up roughly 100 renminbi. There was, I was, there was nothing to buy. 183 was like more than enough. Mark, Mark, and I were Mark and I were at Beida
2: at, at this foreign, foreign students' dorm. Xiaoyuan and There, we were there in the same same dorm. Yeah. And it's true. I mean, we I ate on about the equivalent of sixty cents a day. Uh, so a 158 kuai stipend would take you a, a long way. The
1: most I remember specifically the most expensive thing in the cafeteria was equire. That was That's like right. the <laughs> most. That was yeah, 1.2.
0: There's no there, silent Twin wasn't like this. There was no craft beer. To, you want kind to of get a great leap or a slow boat? But there, there was, was Baijiu. No there was Baijiu. <laughs> can, I, can I have one, by the way? <laughs> <laughs> um. So, Mark, you made a good point. Even now, the value of having Chinese language for a foreigner would be higher for someone like you, uh, Caucasian, whiteface even here, compared to someone like Frankie, who is ethnically Chinese, for instance, right?
1: Yeah, I think that's something that she didn't really touch on in the article, too, is that there's always, of course, that racialized, we're not supposed to say racist, right? It's racially tinged. (laughs) Um, there There is a racist element to it, where overseas Chinese, where ethnic Chinese are expected to speak Chinese, right? So you're held to a different, someone like Anthony is held to a different standard than I am. Uh, even if we, if even our background was identical, so th- I mean that's that's an issue w- as well that I don't think she really touched on in the article. There's another flip side to it that I've heard over the years too is that by speaking Chinese, that's actually a negative that uh, you lose respect. It's, uh, the people that sort of uh, promote this idea, none of them speak Chinese, I find. But they, I, I've had I've had friends say, you know, that Chinese respect the ugly American. They don't respect. They don't respect the sensitive, uh, understanding uh, Chinese-speaking foreigner. They 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 like foreigners to be foreign.
2: But how? <laughs> but how would they know? Because they don't know what they're saying behind they yeah, their back. Right.
1: Yeah. but you still. I mean, to uh, to follow up on David's point too. You, there still is that perspective that you know. I don't really need to speak Chinese because we have translators. You get a lot of that from senior executives, and I. And again, I think they just they don't really know. What they're missing, and they don't really see how people are working around them because they don't speak Chinese. I think that's something that senior executives yeah. really miss out on.
2: Yeah, many business many business deals crashed and burned because the executive or the person in charge had no idea what, yeah. what the underlings or other people he was ordering around, or she or she was
0: ordering around. Well, doing. I think that part of Frankie's point though, those people could never actually uh, carve out enough time to learn Chinese to a point where they could uh, monitor their monitor their their people in the Chinese office. In, in that language. well, here's here's the thing.
2: Chinese, because of its special characteristics we can talk about, I mean it is it is so hard. It's the, the difficulty lies mostly in the script rather than than speaking. But Chinese is probably the only language that we would normally learn and use professionally we as Americans or foreigners, uh, uh, Anglophones, um, that for whom the the uh, it would be a very, very uh, rational and sometimes very sane decision just to not learn the language or not to learn to read the language. Can you imagine going to France and being and set up being setting up a business saying, I'm going to learn to speak French, but why learn to read? Yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's, an, it's an impossible counterfactual because that only makes sense in Chinese. In, in, in French, languages like Spanish... Reading, writing, and and speaking is a composite skill. The three reinforce each other. Once you learn to speak, you can learn to write, and you can read. Only Chinese breaks that circle. And it's I've met lots of expats. There are probably some in this room uh, who speak great Chinese, and they said, "Oh, no, fuck it! I'm not going to read newspapers. I mean, why in the world would I go go, go through all that trouble?"
1: Right? I can speak Chinese, but from... I'm not going to learn the tones. That's another. One. <laughs> I don't <know> the tones. <laughs> But, you know, that actually, that is okay to a level. I think if you're coming to China as a tourist, say you're going to, you know, re- do a really good trip around China. You're going to spend two or three months traveling in China. It really is worthwhile to spend a couple of weeks, yeah. do a night course or something, learn some Chinese. And at that point, you don't have to learn characters. Learn basic phrases and everything. That's enough for basic tourism. But anything beyond that, you need the characters.
2: Yes and no. You want to get you want to get into this now or yeah, let's, let's get into this. Um, yeah, the, the term. By the way, by the way, let me before you get off of tones. Actually, you, tones are also overrated. Wow. In some sense, in go. some sense, Hot because, because tones, uh, people can uh, you can read Pinyin text. Chinese people can read Pinyin text without tones and get ninety nine percent of the meaning. You don't need the tones. And there is the famous experiment of the Chinese robot and you know robots speak with a monotone just one tone this is a robot we speak like this yeah. with just one tone so what watch a zhongguo jiti ren wo xianzai shuo zhongwen ni neng ting de dong ma wo shuo shenme ni dong ma fu you don't need to talk. The tones are not the, 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 the crucial thing in understanding. It's, it's other aspects. So, yes, that's why foreigners can go in and say, you know, they say things and people understand them. It not, has nothing to do with the tones, actually.
0: Do they though? Do they? I, foreigners often the, the ones who use erratic tones are not understood. No, the, the yes, that's
2: true. I mean, if it's bad enough, if it's far enough from the from the. Uh, but the main thing is the the sounds, the the phonemes, and also the grammar. If if you if you come in with absolutely fractured, surrealistic grammar. Yeah. And there's no way they can figure. It. If you do what, what I was just doing, was speaking grammatically correct Chinese That's without right. tones. So if your if your grammar is correct and uh, the word choice is appropriate, the tones really are secondary. Now it's better to have them. Just like in English, if you speak with uh, with a bad, like if you speak like someone from New Zealand, right, who can't pronounce a, who who can't pronounce a sh- short E's like an i, then it's gonna it's gonna influence your comprehension. In in Any yeah. Kiwis he- in here? <laughs>
1: Um, I, think, I think this this is the kind of raises a, an issue that David and I have, have discussed a lot about, you know, that, again, the tones, there's a lot of focus on, like, the disasters that can happen if you get the wrong tone, but right. those tend to be exceptions. So I, I agree with uh, David's point that if you're should need a bee, ma. <laughs> Yeah, that, that's <laughs> it. B, <laughs> oh!
2: B, wow! You see,
1: that's a, that was a disaster, right? <laughs> But my point is we spend an awful lot of time talking about how difficult Chinese is. And that again is an example where the importance of tones is overemphasized. So there are, there are, there are situations where they're really important, but those are relatively rare. Um, this is, this is my main point with learning Chinese is that we spend spar- far too much time talking about how difficult it is. Learning any language is difficult. There are certain things about learning English that are more difficult than learning Chinese. For instance, our totally screwed up grammar, where Chinese grammar is very, simple and relatively easy to relatively easy to learn there are other aspects of chinese that are more difficult than english which language is the most difficult right you know one way to really offend chinese people is to tell them that japanese is even more difficult <laughs> than chinese because frankly chinese are proud of the fact that their language is really yes. difficult yes that's so true this is my problem that's with, true. this is my problem with chinese teachers is that they sort of have this Jekyll and Hyde mentality, right? There's where they, they're really eager to teach students, they really want students to learn Chinese and everything, but the very first thing they'll tell you is, you'll never be able to speak this language. <laughs> now let's begin. <laughs> it's like, that's not, way, that's not the way to teach language. True. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, uh, I, my, my personal list of why we in the West in general do so, so poorly at learning Chinese, number one is that we start too late. If I had to make a list, in my top three, the Chinese is difficult, that it's objectively difficult, wouldn't even make the top three. I, For me, I think the top reasons are we start late. So, for instance, and I started late as well. I didn't speak any Chinese until the age of 19, which is supposed to be too late to learn a foreign language, right? Um, and I was able to overcome that. But in general, we start like I did at first year university. Can you imagine, again, to use this flip side, if a chinese person learning american studies you know studying american society and politics and everything started in first year university by learning the alphabet you know what level would they get to with a university degree in american studies but that's what we do with chinese studies we start very first year of chinese studies teaching people the alphabet, you know, the, the basic, you know, you, so you end up with a four-year degree in Chinese studies, you're supposed to be a sinologist or a budding sinologist, and basically you still only speak a primary school level of Chinese because we don't start until 18 or 19. That's the number one reason. Secondly, we do like a, you know, when I did Chinese studies at the University of Toronto, it was one course per year, one out of five courses, two maybe if you added one Yemen, right, if you've got modern Chinese and you've got classical Chinese, well, that's not you know that's that's not a way to so that's a, that's a that's a half-assed effort. You're, you're not. And thirdly, we don't have true immersion experiences. So for me, what really worked for me is that I came to China and through through chance got into performing and, and living and working with these Xiangsheng performers and really going deep. And I, I didn't realize at the time, but that was an immersion experience. I was okay. surrounded by people that were really focused on language. We were, we were, you know, they're they're very language oriented and none of them spoke English. And so for me, that's really made the chance. I, I think most foreigners who come to China really aren't having an immersion experience. Even if you're living here, even if you're in a university, full-time studies, you're still not in a full immersion, a true immersion environment. So those for me are sort of the top three reasons. And then maybe fourth or fifth would be, well, Chinese is kind of difficult to learn. Yeah.
2: You also were... Uh uh, your, your immersion experience was primarily memorizing, well, not primarily, but a big part of it was memorizing scripts for performance. So you were learning lines, some of which uh, uh, were useful in daily life, or could it be expanded upon, and you were learning those things. You were memorizing them, and you were memorizing them well enough to be able to go on stage and perform them fluently. That's also something that's not usually required in the Chinese classroom, and something that came sort of naturally to, your, to well, your lifestyle.
1: and doing them over and over and polishing them word by exactly. word. Like if something didn't work, you go sure. back and you rework it for the next show.
2: I often tell my students, you know, you, it, at first when you start speaking Chinese, it will feel strange. It will feel like this is not me. This yeah. is not who I am. And I said, learning a language is like is like is like playing a part in a play. The the words at first seem awkward and strange, but you you just assert them confidently, say them over and over again, and soon they will become a part of you, and it won't sound strange to the other people. And you had that experience, you know, weekly.
1: For me, though, I think that experience, and I did this a little bit in Toronto as well. For me, four years of university in Toronto, by far the most important year for me in terms of learning language was third year, where I had an excellent teacher, and the main thing he did was he threw out textbooks. We didn't do textbooks anymore after second year. And I, I firmly believe that. You need textbooks to learn pinyin and the basics and everything. Third year, he just threw them out and he taught us actual pieces of literature. So short yeah, yeah. stories like Zhu uh, uh, Zeqing the Beiyong, which is a story that anyone in growing up in China learns. <laughs> so, but the thing is, this story is like literally two, maybe two and a half pages long. And we would take a full three weeks to learn it really, really well. And I think that's what I did with Xiangsheng as well, is that you're taking one thing and you're really, really nailing it. And you, instead of learning a whole bunch of stuff and sort of getting by, you're learning one thing and doing really, really well at it. And that's that has a lot of uh, a lot of reward, I think.
0: Can you quickly ID that story for all the foreigners <laughs> in the room who didn't just go, Oh, oh boy.
1: What is it... Uh, it's uh, it's um, it's May Fourth literature. It's right, a famous it was, short story and it's taught in all high schools and the, the author is Zhu Xing, and it's called Beiying, which is the uh, How do you translate that? Background. <laughs>
0: yeah. You also you studied for 4 years at Beida, right? Chinese?
1: No, so I did four years at the University of Toronto, and uh, I got a BA, and that's all of my academic credentials. I, I just have a BA in Chinese studies. Although I would say, David, I have two honorary doctorates. <laughs> How many PhDs do you have? Just one. Just one. <laughs> it took me 30 years to get an honorary doctorate, by the way. Um, <laughs> no, so, Ch- so David is the, David is the linguist. I, I have a BA in Chinese studies. I came to Beida as an exchange student, Peking University... But I really came here first of all to kind of wind things up. I thought, okay, this has been interesting. I've done Chinese for four years. <laughs> you know, it's time to sort of get it out of my system and travel the world and go home and just, like, <laughs> get serious about life, right? I didn't. I didn't really think it would be a career. I just thought it was something interesting to do. So when I was here, my whole purpose was to have really interesting and in-depth experiences, Ex- experiences
2: with your language. See,
1: That's what and I that, said. and uh, yeah, who would? I mean. I mean I the, honestly, the reason I started studying Chinese is that I knew that a Bachelor of Arts was not going to get me a job anyway, so I might as well study something fun and interesting yeah yeah you you raise this is interesting
2: because your 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 resume here your life story it is is so in, so indicative of some truths about teaching Chinese teaching I, any language really that that you came upon by accident the the one thing that gets lost very often with Chinese is that uh the chinese teachers themselves sometimes sort of mistakenly think well what's the hard part about chinese well the hard part about chinese is looking at those characters and pulling the sounds out of them remembering the sounds because for them that was what was hard for them because when they when they began to go to grade school five six seven eight years old they already knew chinese they were fluent speakers. <laughs> For them, the hard thing was, you know, the learning the characters, learning that this character sounds like this, that this is a, yeah. this is a or something, right? For us, as starting as foreigners, that's not the only hard part. We have to learn the, the we first have to learn pinyin, which is, hard, which is a, you know, a phonetic system. Then they also have us learn the characters. So we do daily tingxie, sometimes 50 characters a week. And we're also learning grammar and all the other aspects all at once at the same time. And what, the problem with that, you didn't have to go, you, you're at, when you were learning this Chinese at such a rapid rate with, via immersion, you were not sitting in a classroom you know, no. five hours a day doing Teams here, right? So the, the thing I wanna stress here is that what gets lost in the shuffle very often, I think with all language teaching, but especially with Chinese, is that the primary function of language is speech not text not the written language sasura the linguist taught us that speech is primary children learn speech long before they learn script yeah and once you have speech learning the script becomes much much easier especially in a phonetic language but also in chinese and so what happens for the we you were the first few years for elementary chinese no matter where you are, you're sometimes spending an inordinate amount of time trying to get the, get these the meanings, the sounds of these word of these characters out of the text, and also learning things like pinyin. Not to mention things like in my day, just how to look up a character in a dictionary, yeah. that was like a you know a, a semester of secretarial school. You know, it was like a waste a whole. So so all of this gets lost in the shuffle is that the whole idea here we're supposed to learn to talk. Yeah. And people can go four years of Chinese or two years of speak learning Chinese and say, I still can't say anything. Well, you know, I'm still so caught up in this world of characters. You sort of jumped beyond you sort of leapt beyond, you transcended all that by just jumping into performing on TV. So
1: And not so much on TV, it's more it's more the live performing because you it really is comedy is a dialogue with the audience and you have to elicit a response. Right, you, the audience has to laugh, or it's a failed performance. So it's very much a dialogue that way. You have to reach, you have to reach out, you have to touch them somehow, and they have to understand what you're getting at. Um, but I, I well, think. Well, can I
2: just point out something real quickly? Though? The reason they laughed first, and this, some people don't know this, in a certain sense, the reason they laughed at your first skit, which is where you got the name Dashan, yeah. is partly because, in fact, your Chinese wasn't that good. No.
1: so And I so was, they
2: were laughing at, here's a foreigner dressed up like a Chinese country bumpkin, you know, trying to get his wife to let him in at, at night, and your Chinese was not as good as it is now. And that was why, that's what you owe your success to, is your bad Chinese.
1: So, so that, is, that is true. That is true. The first skit. Now, again... I don't. Uh, I am. Um, I don't think the entire career, which is a now a thirty-year career, can really be. You no, know, no, that it's one. No, it's one, I
2: didn't mean to imply that. No, but more. what I mean is what I mean
1: is what actually. So, sort of how I became famous was a series of two or three performances over those first couple of years. The first one was the whole idea is that we were obviously foreigners, but we were playing Chinese characters and we were speaking real down-to-earth vernacular Beijing. But doing it with a foreign accent, yeah. So it was that that was that was funny. It was like really Chinese, but they're so <laughs> foreign, right? So that was the funny thing. I think the thing that really sort of cemented my image on television was the follow-up that to that the second year when the first time that I did Xiangxiang with Jiang Kun and Tang Jiajun, and so everyone remembered me from the previous year from that that funny skit, and then all of a sudden here I am. Now I've been in China for say fifteen months. Uh, And you know I've been running around performing. My my accent was much much better in the second year, and now I'm performing not with another foreign student, but with two of the top level comedians of the day, and getting the better of them, right? Right, and showing them up. So that was that was sort of the one two punch.
0: Uh, You studied under uh, Ding Guangquan, is that right?
1: Yeah. So Ding Guangquan had a huge impact. Uh, I the first public performances, the big performances, the CCTV ones, were with Jiang Kun. Um, and that could have been, you know, this Tanhua Yixian. It could have just been a. Uh, can you translate that for me? No. <laughs> a flash in, a pan, flash in the pan. A flash right. in the pan. And it would have been, except for uh, Mr. Ding Ding Chan took me under his wing, and we worked as partners for three or four years, actually following up and doing this <laughs> as a as a full time endeavor. And I think that's what really made the transition from just sort of a novelty on TV to actually being an accepted performer of, of Xiangsheng.
0: And I, want, I just want to get Ding's name out here because um, he's such a titan in the Xiangsheng industry. He was a mentor. He had a lot of foreign students, such as yourself.
2: Yes, and thank you for mentioning him, Anthony. I think that's very important. He just recently uh, passed away last year. Last year, yeah. And um, he's not very well known here, but it's true in a way, in some sense, Da Shan would not not be here in a, in a sense without Ding Guangxian or maybe. Yeah. But certainly uh, I was his disciple as well. And I don't know how many students he had, many in, in the hundreds perhaps overall. Uh, but he was a, a, actually an amazing figure, a cultural ambassador who taught so many foreigners, Xiangsheng and uh, Kui Bar and other sources of Chu Yi. And uh, all with, with no pay, he never took any money. Um, he treated us with respect he treated, he treated his students, uh, he would teach students no matter what their Chinese level. He tended to, to create scripts and conditions that sort of made the most of their particular strong points or weak points. Yeah. He used to tell me he'd give me scripts where I was sort of muddle-headed and kind of forgetful <laughs> because that's how you are, right? <laughs> and he, he was a wonderful person, and we miss him. He's very sad. And uh, he, he, in a certain sense, a lot of foreigners owe their good Chinese to this person named Ding Wang Chan, who was Hou Baolin's last student yeah. actually right so thank you for mentioning his name
1: i think one of the things he did too is that he really tried to you know foreign foreigners on chinese media tend to be really compartmentalized or uh, fetishized you know right. you're playing a certain role you're playing the foreigner and he really he really tried to get away from that and usually at his own expense it was always the students getting the better of him exactly and uh, that actually, he had a backlash, uh, there was a backlash against that in the industry where people saying, you know, you can't let these foreigners have so much fun with you. You know, they're the, they're the stupid foreigners. They, you know, you've become the stupid Chinese and it makes us look bad. But he, he really was trying to bring out what, was what each student had the best and, and, uh, and really get beyond that sort of just having them play the token foreigner. And so for me, yeah for us I mean it was it was very much a partnership because he wasn't he, he wasn't all that well known in China either. Um, so I had the I had the name I had the, the image the the, the, the the fame that brought these opportunities per, to perform, but he was the guy that knew how to do it. Yeah. I, I wouldn't know how to do it by myself. <laughs> and so um, yeah that had a huge impact on me.
0: yeah uh, on the topic of uh, foreign foreign entertainers in China. Um, often called dancing monkeys, unfairly, if I might <laughs> say. Um, since you sort of retired from this scene, uh, you know there have been several foreigners who have made a name for themselves on social media and doing short videos, but no one has really risen to anything close to your level of fame and success in the mainstream, the Chinese mainstream. Why? Why do you think that is? Bribery. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um. I think in many ways, we, with new technology and new media, we really haven't progressed. I think in some ways things were more open previously. I think now, um, they're very much, you're still really strongly pigeonholed into playing a certain role. Um, you know, one of the things I've done over my career is that I've really resisted ever trying to do, to be part of. The foreigners show. So whenever they had a special that would highlight foreigners, I just naturally had a reaction against that. All of my performances were with legitimate professional Chinese entertainers, performers, and usually at a big uh, variety show that was not sort of a foreign theme thing. It's just I happened to be a performer. I mean, I it's been kind of a it's been kind of a a, a strange uh, balancing act where. I don't deny that I'm a foreigner. I mean, that's part of my identity, but I've never tried to just be the foreigner, right? I, 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 uh, I don't pretend I'm Chinese, but I try to be the best Xiangxiang performer I can. And the fact that I'm a foreigner is just part of my background. You know, I often use the, I often use the analogy of, you know, I'm, I'm male. So, you know, that defines certain things about me. Males are different from females, but that doesn't mean everything I do, I do because I'm male. Sometimes I'm just a person. So the same thing with, you know, not everything I do is because I'm a foreigner. I'm, a, I'm just, I'm Dashan, and this is who I am, and I'm doing a show. But I think now with media, people, I think now we've become even more sort of compartmentalized where you have to be the foreigner, and uh, I'd say it seems to be hard to break out of that.
0: Do you think you could have done what you did today in this environment?
1: Well, no, the media landscape has entirely changed. People often talk about the no, the novelty factor, that it's not... It's not, that, you know, it's not that strange for foreigners to speak Chinese anymore. That's true to a certain extent, but I think we overestimate that. I think it still is relatively novel. I mean, I, I have to say in, in daily life, I get the same expression now that I did 20, 25 years ago. Oh, your Chinese is really good. It's like, that, you know, I mean, I was here last week with uh, Anthony just a couple of days ago on the bookworm. And I literally, we were speaking in English, and I mentioned a restaurant. And I just said the name of the restaurant in Chinese because, <laughs> because place names are always more accurate in Chinese, That's right? right? Yeah. The, the English names are always kind of vague. So I just said the name of the restaurant that I'd come from. And she said, oh, your Chinese is so good. I literally said like four characters of a <laughs> restaurant name.
0: So She didn't recognize you because of your beard.
1: Okay, the beard. But, you know, it's the same thing, like taking taxis and everything. The reaction you get as a foreigner speaking Chinese now in 2019 is not really all that different from 20 years ago. Right. It's not that different. But what does that tell you? The Chinese is very hard to learn. <laughs> <laughs> well, we still do a bad job of it. <laughs>
0: Uh, something you said earlier: uh, Chinese teachers insist that Chinese is very hard. Of course, to their students, they love it. Uh, <laughs> they do. They do love it. But they themselves probably have forgotten how to written, write a lot of characters. Right? A lot of a lot of a lot of Chinese people. Um, this is a phenomenon called character amnesia. And David, like you, you wrote a book that sort of looks at this.
1: 提提笔忘字. T- uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Because
0: everyone w- writes with their thumbs
1: now. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah.
0: So yeah, I just kind of wanted to get back into this topic of um, how you know digital entry, as you say, uh, has you know made writing by hand perhaps maybe no longer a basic skill, or or rather you know even if it is a skill, it's one that people have. Yeah, I can lost. give a
2: brief overview of that. I mean, I think this is a topic that's 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 badly understood by even teachers of the language. The the thing is. We English speakers hardly ever write anything by hand. I don't know the last time I wrote an entire letter by hand. I just don't do it. And yet, when I go to go to write something by hand, I haven't suddenly forgotten how to write English. And the reason is that even when I'm typing, I'm reinforcing the rules of spelling because it's not a matter of this this graphic shape; it's a matter of that 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 symbol. So. My writing by computer does not impede my writing by hand, except it may look bad. It may look sloppy. I can't even write my signature these days. But, uh, but for a Chinese person, the act of physically writing those graphs on the page and typing them with pinyin or speaking them into, a, into Weixin or whatever, uh, if they lose touch with that physicality of using the pen to write, you go a year, two, three, four years, you suddenly find yourself, 提米王子, you lift up the pen and you can't, how do I write this character? And right?
0: the easiest words too, like egg yes, or absolutely. certain vegetables. Yes,
2: yeah, exactly. I've seen people with PhDs who've lived in the US for a few years and they suddenly can't write, you know, egg. Or <laughs> as for the Chinese people in this audience, <laughs> if you say, you write 打噴 tea, sneeze. sneeze, how many of you can write tea? 打噴 tea, just thinking. They're all shaking some, they're shaking their heads. <laughs> Can you imagine, can you imagine an audience of educated English speakers from Harvard, or wherever you said, can you remember how to write sneeze? <laughs> S something? No, I don't get it. I don't remember remember. I, I,
1: I think that's a really good example, and I've read uh, uh, David has written about that before as an example, because in English to sneeze is a simple word. Anybody can spell it. Um, but in Chinese, not even university educated university professors don't know how to write penti the tea, right? But my, my, my comment to that is that nobody needs to know how to write that character. And the technology now is having an impact where it will become less and less important to know how to write that by hand. I think we, you know, again, we, we tend to focus on these things that are really difficult. For instance, everyone talks about biang biang mian, right? <laughs> this character, I don't know, it's 54, 54 yeah, strokes or something. Uh, and so that's, that's all over the internet. You know, here's how difficult Chinese is. Look at this character. bian bian, bian. All it is is the name of a noodle. It's a, it's a noodle dish. And it's like 54 characters. <laughs> well, the thing is, it's a joke character. It's a meme. It, nobody needs to know how to write this character. And I think... But you might know, need to learn how to write sneeze occasionally. <laughs> But no, less but and less with technology. And I think that's what... That's what tech- well, that's what
2: you're, that, you're making the point. That you're, you're making my point. You're saying, well, it doesn't matter these days. But when I was learning Chinese in the 80s, it mattered. <laughs> there was no other way to do it There we didn't have. We didn't even have word processors back then, right? And so you had to... And looking up a word, you had to know all the radicals, you know. You well, could it's spend the, five it, years just learning how to learn Chinese. It's the mouth
1: radical, isn't it? Penti. Oh, that what? How do we it's, write a it's, it's a mouth It's a call. Okay. And it takes,
2: I can write it for you.
1: But anyway. Okay, but, but that's, a, that's an a, interesting point. There's a tian point because, in there.
2: But the, po- the point is, pe- people, uh, I think the, the Ministry of Education, a lot of people are sort of in a, in a panic. because children are forgetting to write their characters. They, or adults certainly are, right? Uh, my wife is Chinese. She can't write anything. If I ask her for a character, she would just look it up. I can't remember it. <laughs> But the point is, we may be at a stage now where, with we, with Weibo and uh, oh, I mean Weixin and these digital tools, that writing by hand is no longer a basic skill that's that important that we should be spending a lot of student hours on on doing it. The uh, the example I give is um, if you know the the, the 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 newspaper, the New York Times. You see that masthead, the New York Times. It's not written in ordinary letters. It's written in a gothic kind of script, but we can read it, the New York Times. I could take that script, and I could write a shopping list with it, you know, a dozen eggs. That You could still read it. But if I take that, that visual away and say, you just read a dozen eggs or the New York Times, can you write any of those letters? None of you could no. write any of them. That is where we are heading with Chinese. people. Chinese speakers will always be able to read the characters I can read, you know, mo- most of the characters that I ever learned to write, but I can't remember how to write them. So we're moving into a digital age, as Mark says, where we don't need to write them by hand, and no, and very few people will spend a lot of time writing them by hand. But you will be able to visually recognize them. And, and that's going to be the that's going to be the big skill of the twenty first yeah. century is not writing.
1: It's not so much about Weibo, Weixin and social media. It's that uh, Chinese actually has an advantage with voice input in that especially Mandarin as sort of a modern invented language has very standardized pronunciation and is well-suited to voice input. So that's, that's actually true. an area where Chinese has an advantage over English.
0: True. Right, so uh, May 4th, intellectuals like uh, Chen Duxiu and um excuse me, but my tones, <laughs> and <laughs> Lu Xun, of course, um, uh, uh, advocated the abolishment of characters. Uh, and they were accused at that time of being colonialist. That's right. Right.
2: Yeah, I mean, Le, Lu Xun is supposedly said on his deathbed. Uh, it was uh, Han Biwang. If they don't eliminate the Chinese characters, the country, is Chi- finished, the Chinese is, China is doomed. Uh, so, what did he mean by that? He meant literacy. Because he was saying these things are these carriers are too hard for the illiterates in the countryside to learn. It takes too many years to learn to write Then We've got to switch over to an alphabetic language. I talk about that in in, in my book.
0: One billion one billion voices. And
2: and so the May Fourth, a lot of those May Fourth intellectuals saw that as a crisis, a survival. That you had to develop a literate populace, and the only way you could really do that among a vast group of people who were who were who were literate was to develop use an alphabet like like English. Now, with computers, actually, that's a, a moot point. We don't need to go that far now because the, the crisis is over because digital revolution has solved it. So, well, also Lu, Lu, I- Lu if he were alive today would say, uh, 沒關係, he wouldn't care. So, but
1: also a very different age in that that's an age, the new culture movement, the May 4th movement and everything, where, there's, where China is a basket case, right? And it's a rejection of right. we're doing things wrong. It's a rejection of traditional culture. We need to do something different. And I think that whole ethos is different now. where And that's something we've noticed a big change from the 80s to now, Whereas the 80s were much more of in that sense was a much more open-minded kind of area, era where we're coming out of this disaster of the cultural revolution. We need to change, we need to change, we need to right. learn from abroad. Now you've had the sense in China is much more that we're on the right path, we're doing okay. And actually what we need is more traditional culture.
0: <laughs> we need to we
1: need to bring back that traditional culture. So that that kind of feeling of this age is totally different than right. the nineteen eighties or or that whole new culture movement. Right. That's right. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, but uh, but because of how hard the language is, to what extent is it a hindrance on China's soft power efforts to, to export, not just their, you know, their language, but everything tied within it, such as culture?
1: Um, you know, David mentioned the word anglophone, and of course, in a Canadian context, we talk a lot about anglophones and francophones, because that's sort of a basic issue in Canada. And the, the nice thing, I mean, the, the attractive thing about those words, francophone is just someone who speaks Chinese, right? French. Or fr- uh, French. <laughs> a francophone. <laughs> Sorry. I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm getting ahead of myself. Because the, the Chinese equivalent would be a sinophone. But that word, I mean, I, I looked it up on Pleco. It's not even in the dictionary. No, but
2: Victor Mayer at Pennsylvania has begun to use it, so you're right. Yes, but you're right. And I,
1: I've often said that in talks with uh, when I speak at you know, universities and everything, is that we don't have that concept in Chinese of somebody who speaks Chinese who's not ethnically Chinese, right? A francophone right. has no ethnic connotation whatsoever. Right. You could be from anywhere. As long as you speak French, you're a francophone. Right. Uh, Sinophone, you know, in Chinese, you, you can often tell whether a concept is native or not by how succinct it is, right? So, 会说中国话的外国人。<laughs> it's, seven, it's seven characters, right? And so I, I say this. This shows how foreign the idea is. You know, some a Chinese person speaks Chinese. You know, a Sinophone, somebody who's not Chinese but speaks Chinese, is a very foreign right. concept in Chinese. And somebody said to me, you know, somebody stood up after I gave this talk and said, well, you know, we don't need a word for that because we just call it huishuo <laughs> The Well, that's the point. You know, it takes it takes you seven characters to explain that 我要把, idea.
0: What about what about no, that's a little bit different.
1: No, that's just somebody who understands China, But research but, but, but Mark, that's a very good point, I think. It's very
2: perceptive because what it does, it, it's re, it's, it, it serves to continue to reinforce the link between that language and the ethnicity, Yeah, which is an artificial – I mean, which is not an artificial link, but it's only historical – Link, and there's no reason why we shouldn't start talking about people like you who are a sinophobe. But there's a resistance to it, as yeah. well, the cab drivers will tell you, because they look in the backseat yeah. and they say, wow, 你中国话说的太好了, because white they think phone. that link, how, how can a white person be able to be a Sinophobe? But yeah. so it's very difficult
1: <laughs> to get beyond that perception, right? Because Ch- uh, Chinese people speak Chinese, so right. and people who aren't Chinese just don't speak Chinese. right? So I think I I don't think the language itself is that much of a barrier it's more of that you know that whole idea nei wai bie right there, there's a fundamental difference between foreigners and westerners or westerners and chinese nei wai and that's a very fundamental kind of thinking in in china everything can be divided into it's either foreign or it's chinese even things that you know don't make sense they still divide it into it's either foreign or it's chinese (laughs) Um, that's a very fundamental distinction in chinese in in i think in the chinese psyche so it's not so much the the language is difficult i think it's that that fundamental assumption that chinese people speak chinese no one else speaks chinese
2: which works in the opposite with as you mentioned with uh heritage learners or asian heritage people come to china and they they say, why don't you speak Chinese? What's wrong with you?
1: Because they have this, this feeling that genetically you should be imbued with this ability ability to speak Chinese. I think when it comes to soft power, my point is that it's not so much that the language is difficult. That's not the main barrier. The main, the main thing I think China doesn't get about soft power is that it's not a state function. American soft power is not something that the American government does. It doesn't come from the White House. It comes from jazz music, it comes from rock and roll, it comes from whatever you know it, it, it's it's cult- it's people, it's people, it's culture. and China approaches soft power from a very top down organized way, you know Confucius institutes and everything it's always it's always a, it's always a state yeah. um, <coughs> uh, venture. and I think Chinese uh, it's not just government policy, I think Chinese people themselves when they because of this concept of newaobia right when you when you are with foreigners or you're in a for- you're you're an ambassador for your people you're 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 an ambassador you know and they immediately tense up and they become really phony right they don't i think that's one of the things like Mr. Ding was a great example of true chinese soft power because he was just a person dealing with foreigners on a person to person level and it's very difficult first of all the chinese state sort of organizes everything so it all has to be like an official an official uh, program and secondly chinese people i think just tend to tense up when they sense that they're dealing with foreigners and they have to be careful what they say and they're they're a representative of china and uh, you know they have this huge emotional burden that they that they bring to it i think that's the main problem china has with with soft power is that they don't allow their people to express that power yeah that's
2: i'm into that or amen whatever we say that's 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 very true there's what there's as an educator uh, there's just one aspect where the language and what I meant by the, the, the drag on Chinese soft power is look it, part of the secret of the, the United States soft power is not only the attractiveness of the movies and, and the, the music per se, but it's because all the, 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 the people of different language uh, cultures, especially China, they know English. They've studied it since they were small and they, it's cool to speak it and they understand it. Um, if you want to get this same kind of attractiveness with Chinese, as the Chinese well know, you've got to get a lot more sinophones, we'll use your word, which is a good one, right? More sinophones out there in the world so that their pop songs, their movies, and even their novels and things, which Nobel Prize people have to figure out someone to translate it. Therefore, as an educator, I'm very, you know, acutely aware of the fact that we've got to get Chinese teaching, the teaching of Chinese right? So that you get more effective learners, the people are learning quicker, getting to a level of fluency and ability to understand faster. And that's why the, the problems that I see with the overemphasis on characters and these, all these issues sort of make that process less effective and slower and, it, and it, it makes people who are predisposed to actually want to learn Chinese culture to learn the to to listen to the music, to watch the movies they want right. to they're, they they're dying to be able to experience it and it's just the barrier, the threshold is so high because of the way it's taught very often that they just give up and and then they, they lose that attractiveness that but also
1: I think the driving force behind that is pop culture. So if you look at, it uh, apparently lots of people uh, in the West now are studying Korean. Why? Because Korean culture is really... K-pop. It's K-pop. It's, it's popular culture, which is really attractive. Uh, Japanese culture. That's why people learn Japanese, because it's cool and they want to get into the culture. Chinese. They, have, to, phonetic,
2: they have phonetic writing systems, by the way. But,
1: you know, <laughs> Chinese, that. Chinese soft power tends to be pushing things like calligraphy. And you know, it's, it, and tongue poetry, it's like all these things that don't attract, they, you know, those are great when you get to a certain level and you really get into them, but they're not things that appeal to young, to young no. people that, that sort of, to, to bring them in.
0: If there are any I mean, Chinese publishers out there uh, and you want to you publish a book that is for a foreign audience, please put the pinion <laughs> above the characters. It would help sales quite a bit, I think. <laughs> I came across an interesting article on um, Dictionary.com of all places uh, very recently about language denialism. Um, I don't know if you guys have heard this term, but um, it was expounded on by uh, this guy named Gerald Roche, who is an anthropologist at Australia's La Trobe University, uh, expounded upon on, on Twitter of all places. Um, and he mentions things like accentism, which is discrimination based off accent, like making fun of people who speak Hubeihua or something. Um, <laughs> uh, not hey, my wife no. is from Hubei. <laughs> no this is wrong accentism is wrong oh, is what okay. I'm saying um, and, uh, and he mentions um, you know China specifically in this thread uh, you know, he lists a lot of different examples from different countries but what he says about China is China has 56 Minzhu or peoples each with one language Chinese, Chinese linguists count about 130 languages ethnologue li- lists 299 um PRC counts one indigenous language in Taiwan. Taiwan counts 16. Tibetans speak one language or 30 plus. Um, what do you make of this? And this is a, so the last thing we'll, uh, we'll really dive into. It
1: all, well, it raises that issue of what's a dialect and what's a language, right? These are, these are sort of regional languages. That's a linguistic...
2: Right. With the, I also talk about it in, the, in, in my book, A Billion Voices Available Not Here. <laughs> <laughs> Um yes the the old joke is uh, a language is a dialect with a navy <laughs> meaning there is no there is no actual linguistic distinction hard line between a, a dialect and a language it's it has it's a political definition more than it is a linguistic one so because portuguese has a navy we say it's not a dialect of spanish and so forth so china is a very complicated situation uh because we call these different regional uh, lang- languages, feng yan, so the language of a district, right? Um, and so there are actually, if you just speak of the Han, la- lang- the Han languages, some of those are merely accents, as you say. I mean, the Hubei dialect is basically uh, about as different as, as what I'm speaking, and somebody like Texas might talk like this, you know? That's a, that's not a language difference. That's a dialectical difference. Because
1: or the Canadian sitting beside you. Yes, right. <laughs> Out ab- and About the house.
2: You were about about to. Say, I can't do the about <laughs> <laughs> about about. Um. But many of them uh, are separate languages. Cantonese, Mark's a native speaker of Cantonese here. Or is it, uh,
1: <laughs> yeah, baby. Cantonese
2: is as different uh, from the, the northern dialects as, as French is from German, or uh, French is from Italian, perhaps, as rather it would be a better...
1: And it's all convoluted in Chinese, of course, because of the shared written language, which is... Right. Really doesn't have so, a parallel so, in Europe. So the
2: confusion, right? Exactly. People say, "Well, wait a minute. They must have a common language. How, how do they everywhere read the newspaper?" <laughs> the, the reason for that also is because no, un, unconsciously or consciously, the people who are reading newspapers from, from Guangdong uh, from Guangdong Province, we say Canton these days. I don't know. Guangdong Province are effectively bilingual. They're reading basically what is a form of, of Mandarin. It's a, a, a written form. Nowadays, you would say it's Putonghua because that's the standard that's been adopted. But when they speak to their relatives, they use different words, different grammar, different words for family members. It is a different language. And people who – Mark is is the expert on this – you can tell us about Cantonese versus Bay <laughs> That was. Uh,
1: this is another thing I get. You, like, you, you get up and you do a comedic skit, but people don't treat it as comedy. It's like a. It's like a lecture, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm actually well, you, giving a lecture. You no. did give a, it. Was a lecture and a comedy skit. It was. That's brilliant. That's what's good about it. Yeah, but the reason it's comedy is because it's only half true. It's <laughs> half true and half bullshit. That's what makes it comedy. <laughs> so I get a lot of comments about the bullshit part. I wasn't giving a lecture. Okay. What was I going to say? Up for, I think the standardization of the Chinese language, 普通話, which I always find to be an ugly word, like, 普, <laughs> I, don't, we've got, you know, I wish they had a better word for Mandarin in Chinese than just 普通話. although it, it could be called the common tongue, right? It's That's what it is. That just common, tongue, tongue, common tongue, which kind right? of sounds like it comes from Middle Earth or something. It kind of sounds like Lord of the Rings. <laughs> um, there's a tremendous amount of pride in that, I think, in the standardization of the language and how that has been tied this country together and made it a modern, unified nation, right? That's been, that's been a central goal from the, from the new right. culture movement. And then through the 1950s, this uh, so-called new China and standardization of Putonghua and spread across the country uh, using things like Xiangsheng, which is, that was right. one of the early roles of Xiangsheng was to promote this Beijing-based dialect the, Around the country is the, the, the there national There is a language. piece just called uh, oh, yeah. Xie
2: Putonghua or whatever. Kou
1: Baolin did it. Yeah. So there's a perception in China that that's nation building, right? We're we're taking this really diverse nation that's been you know sort of ripped apart and we're bringing it together and we're building a modern nation through a unified language. So there's, there's a lot of pride about that. But of course, that uh, has also been done to an extreme where this northern dialect has really... You know, there's a lot of resentment against it, not only in Guangdong, but also Shanghai or other places that have a very strong regional identity that are very proud of their own language and are unable to study it in school or use it on media or anything. So that's there's some tension there. But I think in in general, it's very hard to sort of explain to Chinese people that the nationalization of the language and the promotion of a common tongue has been sort of an imperialistic negative thing i think that's really seen as one of the of the building blocks of a of a modern unified nation
2: well they certainly thought so that was the, you know one nation one language one people the sort of the vision they had which is never true in any any country ever but they had this vision that the the foreign powers had that feature so but but yes they 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 There there was two goals. One was mirror communication because there was a serious communication problem. People just couldn't talk to each other. That's why the old stereotype of Chinese, when they were talking to each other, would write characters in their in the palm of their hand in order to be understood. So communication. Or in the air, right? In the air. You're supposed
0: to follow that. Yeah. Right. (laughs) With
2: xing shu or what? It's like they're directing Beethoven's Fifth Symphony or something, <laughs> but uh, the other the other uh, sort of priority, as you as you say, was was national unity. And those have both always been the, the two goals, as you say, because they want to. You know, how can we how can we be how can we be speaking Chinese if everyone's speaking a different language? So yeah. so the problem is they haven't quite even to this day they haven't quite figured out or be very or haven't been very clear about exactly what the goal of, of universal te- teaching putonghua is uh, you know if so because if as as long as everyone can understand it does it really matter if they can speak the minister of education estimates there's as many as 300 million chinese who still cannot speak putonghua though they understand it passively on the radio and tv so there's you know china has not fallen and yet they've they've come very far to make a so this universal language they're they're a long
0: way from getting everyone to speak it uh, of course. and um, Except for Mark here, who speaks it very well. <laughs> I do have to point out, of course, um, they do also use it as a political tool. As you said, uh, one of the things we know that they do in those detention camps in Xinjiang, for instance, is force everyone to speak Mandarin. Uh, this is a, you know, the imposition of the language of the Han Chinese, which is the patriotic language.
1: You know, the, I, I would say not just uh, politically and administratively, but also culturally in China, whenever there's a problem the answer usually is more control, more standardization. You know, right, uh, <laughs> uh, <increase> <laughs> yeah, It's never, it's never. Oh, we're having a problem here. We need to open things up and just let it sort of grow organically, right? That never happens in China. It's always, it's always about control and and top-down control and standardization. Like whenever there's sort of you know. In the Olympics, right when there, were, there was a huge crackdown on unstandard English, we need to make stand. We, you know, they and I often say English is a language with no standard. right? There, <laughs> there is no yeah, standard. Yeah, exactly. You notice Chinese have a lot of trouble sort of determining whether to learn British English or American English because they always want to know which standard is right, correct. Yeah, <laughs> which one is correct? Yeah. Um, so I think that's a cultural that's a cultural thing as well. There's a, there's a need for one standard and why yeah so I mean if you if you talk about the again you know the issue in Xinjiang and uh, and the imposition of Han culture in Xinjiang and everything that is not something that most Chinese find is objectionable that seems to be that's just part of the nation building right we need to everyone needs to be
0: the same that seems to be the reaction unfortunately uh, on that note on mark that downer <laughs> uh, thank you thank you so much for joining us um, that's it I thought this was a two hour special <laughs> before we get on to recommendations I need to remind everyone that the Seneca podcast is powered by SupChina visit subchina.com to subscribe to our newsletter and read great original writing that we're featuring uh, please also follow us on Twitter or on Facebook where the handle is SupChina News the best way to support what we do is by signing up for SubChina Access, which is our members-only section that includes extra content and analysis, plus access to a special Slack channel where you can talk to editors and, uh, you know, bother us. Um, okay, on to recommendations. David, why don't you start us off? Okay, so I'm the Jeremy, huh? Okay. Uh, well,
2: I was going to recommend something, but we're here in a bookstore, and there's books all around, and... uh I'm looking at our friend Graham Earnshaw over there. So I thought actually what I would do is, is recommend uh, for people who haven't gotten on their website to look investigate uh, Earnshaw books uh, online. And Peter just did that, but I'd like to mention it again. He, uh, Graham, Graham, who's a musician, by the way, and was just playing warm, backup or what warm-up band, I guess, for us. He's uh, a talented singer, writer, songwriter. But uh, he just told me they publish 25 books a year that's an amazing output you know that's very prodigious I mean they can't be all that good (laughs) (laughs) some recommendation (laughs) some recommendation But get online. Look, there, there's, a great, there's a lot of reprints. What I love about it, actually, are the reprints of the old expat writings about China and Beijing that he reprints, and you can read what people said about you know, the expat community. But also novels, uh, things that peripheral of China or things about Chinese history. It's just a wonderful resource. of great books, and it's just, uh, you owe it to yourself if you're, a, if you're a sinophobe or a sinophile to get online and investigate. Lots of great books. Don't get online. Read books. <laughs>
0: Uh, Graham is also he's a he's a folk musician and on Bandcamp he has several albums for five dollars each uh, two recommendations well. for the prize of one <laughs> okay David uh, sorry Mark
1: <laughs> so I would like to recommend uh, an internet show which is really rare to find anything really uh, I'm sorry what's on Weibo is here today again I don't want to say anything bad about Weibo but you know I mean working in media now it's kind of a depressing time um, it's a it's a difficult time to work in media. There's more restrictions than ever, and when you do good stuff, I mean, there's so much more media now. It's very hard to make an impact, right? Um, and so there's sort of a tendency to produce quick and dirty garbage because that's what uh, that's what appeals, um, and plus all of the restrictions now on on media. There's one there's one internet series that I uh, discovered a couple of years ago. I think it's into its third series now. It's called Yao. Uh, so this is for this is for Chinese speakers. It's hosted by uh, Xu, Xu Zhiyuan, which is who you can find on the Subchina website. He published an article a couple of years ago on Subchina called "The Anaconda and the Elephant." Right. Um, very interesting article. That's a good place you can start. He does a video series on t- uh, 10 Cent Video. Called Shisan Yao, which is literally thirteen invitations. So Yaoqing, the Yao, thirteen invitations. Thirteen just being the number of a regular TV series, right? That, that's that's a quarter of a year is thirteen episodes, um, and uh, I think in this really difficult environment, he's doing an amazing uh, show where he brings in really, really iconic figures from media and culture and business people. You know, the 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 movers and shakers, the doers of today and doing an hour-long, really in-depth, intelligent discussion with them. And I think that's so hard to do now, and he does it really well. I mean, it's some some episodes are better than the others. I think if you, the first season, uh, we're into the third season now, the first season was an absolute killer. But even the third season, he's doing some really, really interesting stuff. And I can't help but think, you know, if things were more open now, how amazing the show would be. It, it reminds me a lot of sort of what we saw more in the 1980s with really intelligent, long-form writing. But he does it in a modern internet video kind of style sort of in front and behind the camera sit down as well as you know sort of wild shots and everything really really well done and and uh and uh and amazing actually in this environment to do something that well so and it can be found on Tencent video
0: uh mania is in in fact uh you know the founder of what's on weibo she's in the audience so i want to Want to recommend what's on Weibo? Did I <laughs> did I uh, did I say your last name correct? No, Kutsa. Kutsa. Uh, I also want to recommend the uh, the Beijing International sorry the Beijing Invitational Beer Festival. It's happening right now this weekend. Um, <laughs> it's uh, it's organized by Great Leap Brewing, and I uh, the, you know they've, they've invited um, I think 46, 45 breweries from around the world, fifteen different countries, two hundred eighty beers, um, and I, I mentioned it here. Not to make everyone not in Beijing jealous, but um, as a tip of the cap to uh, all the independent brewers out here in China. Anyone doing anything independently at all, actually, in this um, in this environment that's getting tougher and tougher. Um, yeah, you, you guys have my admiration. People like Peter Goff, really, running this independent literary festival. Um, so the Great Leap. Uh, the owner is Carl Setzer, and he's been very vocal about resisting uh, the encroachment of mega conglomerates who drop into this market because they see profit potential and end up watering down what's great about diversity and choice and the spirit of enterprise and experimentation. And um, I, uh, I have got one more. <laughs> I, uh, I, I have a, I have a plug, and. Uh, that's right, that's right. Great Leap is a sponsor of this festival this year. That's right. Um, um, I have a plug. It is not without shame that I do a little self-promotion, um, but I have an album. It is called The Last Tribe on Earth. I'm so sorry. You were waiting for us to say that. <laughs> <laughs> it is great, it is great. Uh, it's in the form of this uh, 60-page chat book here. There's a download code in the back, and uh, it's my original poetry with the... Um, uh, with the original compositions on the classical guitar uh, with my collaborator named Leanne Halton. Um, and I don't know if any of you have heard the classical guitar, but it's, uh, it's not the same as acoustic. Um, it's uh, played by the right person. It can sound like multiple instruments. And, um, and I have to say, there's no person who's more right for that instrument than Leanne. So um, she's masterful. She's classically trained. Um, and you just have to hear it to believe it. So um, if you want to find it, it's Poetry X Music poetry x music you can find it on Bandcamp, twitter or facebook whatever okay um uh david mark thank you to both of you uh the syndica podcast is powered by Subchina and produced by kaiser gua and jeremy gold with editing help by jason mcronnell drop us an email make sure you drop us a rating and we'll see you next week